Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with yet another tragedy on our southern border on Monday with 51 migrants found dead in a tractor-trailer outside of San Antonio, Texas. Joining us is Jean Guerrero, an opinion columnist at the Los Angeles Times and previously an investigative reporter for NPR, the PBS NewsHour and other public media. The recipient of an Emmy, she began her career at the Wall Street Journal and the Dow Jones Newswise as a correspondent in Mexico City and is the author of Crux, a cross-border memoir, and most recently Hate Monger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump and the White Nationalist Agenda. We'll discuss her latest article at the Los Angeles Times, Unending Deaths of Migrants Driven by Desperation in U.S. Border Policies and What Can Be Done to Break Up the Callous Human Smuggling Networks and the role of volunteer groups trying to rescue migrants from death in the desert as our borderlands with Mexico became a graveyard. Then, following yesterday's explosive testimony by Cassidy Hutchinson, we will explore the likelihood that Giuliani and Flynn will go to jail and that the DOJ is already building cases against Meadows, Clark, Eastman and Trump. Joining us is David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. Also the founder of DCReport.org, his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family, And we will discuss his latest article at dcreport.org, Liz Cheney Sends Conspirators a Message. Then finally we'll examine concerns that the deal Sweden and Finland made with Turkey to join NATO involves selling out the Kurds who have sought refuge from Erdogan's lawless repression. Joining us is Kani Zulam, who is the director of the American Kurdish Information Network, a native of Kurdistan, He has worked closely with members of the United States Congress and their staff to seek the freedom of Kurdish parliamentarians imprisoned in Turkey. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, Jean Guerrero, an opinion columnist at the Los Angeles Times and previously an investigative border reporter for NPR and PBS NewsHour and other public media. The recipient of an Emmy, she began her career at the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones Newswires as a correspondent in Mexico City and is the author of Crux, a cross-border memoir, and most recently Hate Monger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump and the White Nationalist Agenda. And her latest article at the Los Angeles Times is Unending Deaths of Migrants Driven by Desperation and U.S. Border Policies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jean Guerrero. Great to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the death toll now has risen to 51 people found in a 
trailer truck near Lackland Air Force Base near San Antonio, Texas. I think there's still people in, in hospital, and I think some of them are very young children, are they not? Exactly. We don't know the exact ages, but there are at least four minors who were transported to the hospital with heat-related illnesses after they were found inside of this tractor-trailer that was filled with um, with with bodies. So do we know what happened, why this... We, we know that these traffickers are callous, and we've had many incidents similar to this before. But in this case, apparently the the driver abandoned the rig and was found in a nearby... running in a nearby field, and I think three others have been arrested, or at least they have three in custody, I believe. So... What do we understand about what happened here? I mean, I don't understand the callousness because presumably you're getting paid to deliver live bodies, not dead bodies. Exactly. I mean, the callousness is just monstrous. And I mean, it's hard at this point to understand exactly what happened. Um, But it is not uncommon for people to be abandoned en route to their destinations in the United States, whether it's at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, when smugglers feel that certain people are are lagging behind. That's that's a a frequent um, reason for for abandoning people in the desert where uh, so many people, you know, hundreds of people have died every every year. But I think what's important to keep in mind is that, you know, while, in fact, these smugglers whom the Biden administration has been pointing fingers at as the primary culprits in this tragedy, the fact is that the border militarization that has been taking place for decades now was deliberately designed to force people into more dangerous um, routes into the United States and to, you know, and to endanger their lives. And we've been seeing this take place since the 1990s when the initial border fencing went up and people were forced to reroute their pathways into the United States from urban centers like San Diego and into the desert, where many people have, where thousands of people have died from heat exhaustion and dehydration, other, and other environment, other conditions from from the extreme environment Um, we're seeing more and more people dying from trying to cross through the oceans and washing ashore um, often in 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 san diego Um, they they come in panga boats often the smugglers don't give them working life jackets and when they run into trouble these these people lose their lose their lives Um, and and one thing that that this tragedy is reflective of is that we're seeing more and more people uh, cramming into large vehicles like this tractor trailer um, because of the fact that the border has become so difficult to cross where people are being systematically turned away from ports of entry they're being denied their right to asylum biden has kept in place some of trump's most draconian immigration policies from title 42 uh, the COVID-related policy that turns people away um, to remain in Mexico, where people are forced to, to wait out their asylum cases in Mexico. So people are, are desperate to reach the United States. They um, they fear for their lives. They they fear for their, their children's lives. And they're often willing to take great risks to 
to reach the United States because they see it as their only option. And the United States has structured the border in such a way that it, it's impossible for people to to get here without placing themselves in, in extreme danger. And again, I'm speaking with Jean Guerrero, an opinion columnist at the Los Angeles Times and previously an investigative border reporter for NPR, the PBS NewsHour and other public media. A recipient of an Emmy, she began her career at the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones Newswise as a correspondent in Mexico City and is the author of Crux, a cross-border memoir, and most recently, Hatemonger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump and the White Nationalist Agenda. And her latest article, the Los Angeles Times, is Unending Deaths of Migrants Driven by Desperation and U.S. Border Policies. And your article at the Los Angeles Times, Unending Deaths of Migrants Driven by Desperation and U.S. Border Policies, points out that while Texas Governor Greg Abbott is grandstanding, uh, saying that these deaths are a result of President Biden's open open border policies, and you've just pointed out that they're the same policies that Trump had. So, but tell us about Abbott's role in making conditions worse on the border for that's driving people to take these more dangerous routes, including cramming themselves into trailers. Well, he has he is one of those people who's deliberately made the border more deadly to cross. For example, with his beefed-up border militarization program, which is an agreement that he signed with the governor of Nuevo León, the Mexican state of Nuevo León, this agreement has made it far more difficult for people to enter Texas through the regular smuggling routes. And so you see more people packing into these trailers, like like what we saw on Monday, and, and either getting into to car accidents or being exposed to extreme heat conditions inside of those vehicles because of the extreme heat in Texas. And so it's, it's just, it's just absurd when you see him blaming um, these deaths on a quote unquote open borders policy that clearly does not exist. The the border is closed. Texas sued to, to try to close the, to, to keep, you know, to keep these draconian Trump policies in place and won. And so the border is, is closed. It's, it's militarized. It's, it's very difficult to cross. And as a result, people are having to find incredibly dangerous routes into this country. And, and so I, I think that if, if anybody has blood on their hands, uh, you know, tied to this tragedy, sure, sure, you can point your fingers at the smugglers. But G- Governor Abbott is 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 a main um, figure in in this. He he's he's made it impossible for people to seek their human right um, and their legal right to seek asylum in this country. And apparently, at least six hundred and fifty migrants have died crossing the U.S. Mexico border in twenty twenty one. And what kind of figures do we have for this year so far? I don't have the figures for this year, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was as high as last year, given the the the, the climate conditions that we're seeing, uh, and and just the extreme desperation due to conditions in in the countries of origin uh, of migrants who want to seek asylum here. Um, I, I think what's extraordinary is that you know you you had more than six hundred people die at the border last year. And this is something that has been going on for so long. And our politicians just continue to 
turn a blind eye and you know at most they'll point fingers at the other party and say that this is their fault they're they'll point fingers at the smugglers and say that this is their fault but but we've we know what's causing these people's deaths like it's 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 border militarization strategies that were designed to put people's lives in danger so that they wouldn't come but people who have no other option are going to come they're going to keep coming they've kept coming we know that that's the case and so we need more humane border strategies so that we don't continue to see this. I mean, I was in high school when I learned about the Yuma 14, a, a group of 14 Mexican men who died trying to cross the border in 2001. Um, I remember reading about it in The Devil's Highway by Luis Alberto Urrea and just being completely devastated and shocked that this was happening so close to where I was growing up in San Diego. And... Again, I was in high school, and, and this has continued to happen. Mass deaths at the border of people trying to enter the United States, and, and these deaths are directly tied to border militarization, and we've done nothing to change strategies. So tell us about these organizations of volunteers who go into the desert in these borderlands, which have become a kind of graveyard, providing water, or at least leaving water and I imagine directions and stuff because quite often people are abandoned by the coyotes. Uh, Aguilas del Desierto is one of the groups. Now you have hiked with these groups along these border smuggling routes in Arizona, and you found uh, human skulls, decomposing human bodies. You found Bibles, children's photographs, and other mementos. So describe the, what this country is like and how forbidding it is. Well, it just speaks to how common and widespread these deaths have become at our, at our border. You know, I, every time that I went out with this group, Aguilas del Desierto, which means Eagles of the Desert, um, we came across human remains of some kind, you know, human skeletons, uh, decomposing human bodies. Um, often these are these are remains that have been torn apart Um because of the animals that live in the desert, um, but 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 it's just it's it's when I speak to the volunteers who do this on a regular basis, like these are these are immigrants, these are construction workers, they're plumbers, people who who have regular jobs, but they go out on weekends to try to rescue people because they understand that this is a, a huge problem in a vacuum, um, and. And they, they're just, they're traumatized by, by how common this is. And more, more often than not, they're unable, to, they have saved lives, but more often than not, they're, they're finding bodies to bring closure to the relatives of people whose, whose relatives have been lost in the desert. Um, Aguilas del Desierto has been receiving phone call after phone call since Monday from people across Latin America who want to know if their loved ones were among those who were found dead or alive in that tractor trailer. It's, it, it gets me emotional just to think about it because I, I just think it's, it's, it's so easy for people in the United States to, to sort of think about how awful this is and, and then just forget about it and, and, and think, well, there's nothing to be done. You know, these, these people are desperate and, and they're trying to reach the country. It's not our fault that they've put their lives at risk. But 
it's 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 insane to me that we continue to allow mothers, children, fathers to to die in this way when there are alternatives, proven proven alternatives. I mean, we've not tried them because we were just stuck in our old ways. But for example, like if we were to provide a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented people in this country, then they could sustainably help people, their relatives, their loved ones in their home countries without that pressure to reunite north of the border that that causes so many people to risk their lives and to make the journey north, because then they could actually visit their relatives in Guatemala, in El Salvador. Um, There would be less of a pressure to reunite in the U.S. and to make that dangerous journey. And there would also be greater economic opportunity for them to 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 help people in their home countries. But Republicans are just so opposed to any pathway to legalization because of xenophobia, because of racism, because of nativism, that that it seems like this is 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 not it's just not even being considered, even though it could solve the problem. Well, in effect, what you're arguing for is is uh, not open borders, but having people come through the proper channels with the understanding that if short of citizenship, which the xenophobes don't like, my understanding is, and I've spoken to a lot of immigrants, they don't leave Mexico or Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador on a whim. It's a heartbreaking and sad decision. And and if people were able to go back and forth freely, they would spend much more time, and certainly, you know, certainly spend time more time with their relatives in in their home countries, and and would work in the United States. So it would be a win win, wouldn't it? It it absolutely would would be. You know, I, I was just recently speaking with a woman from Honduras who who still lives in Honduras and who fights for. Um, her indigenous community in Honduras to be able to stay at home. And she was telling me like everybody talks or some people, not uh, certainly not everybody, but some people talk about how we have a right to move. We have a right to migrate, but nobody talks about how we have the right to stay. We have the right to not ha- be displaced from our home communities. And and most people don't want to leave. They, they leave because they're forced to leave because of a lack of economic opportunity or because of violence. And so there, so those are two separate things. The, the violence, a majority of it is happening with U.S. guns that are smuggled in, south of the border. Um, Mexico has some of the strictest gun laws in the world. They only have one gun store and it's heavily guarded by the military. It's a very difficult process to get a gun. But a majority of crimes in Mexico are committed by guns that are smuggled in. And the U.S. gun manufacturers know that this is happening. They've done nothing to stop that. So if, if we want to stop the violence, that's that's one place to look. And then secondly, when it comes to economic opportunity, it's what I was talking to you about before. Like if we if we only provide a pathway, like a, a work permit, like let, let's put citizenship aside, because as you were saying, Ian, not I mean, it doesn't we don't I, I think I think undocumented immigrants in this country deserve to be fully integrated citizens and not to live as second class citizens. But at the very least, we, we need to provide them with work permits and some kind of legalization so that they can cross the border. They can visit their relatives back home. They can help them uh, financially in a much 
more substantial way because they would earn higher wages um, by virtue of being legalized in the United States. Uh, So these are very common sense solutions that would help everybody. It would help our economy. It would allow essential workers who harvest our food, who take care of our elderly to live more dignified existences in this country and to feel freer and less terrified constantly of of having their lives uprooted by deportation. Um, it, it would just be a win-win all around. And and I, I think it's 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 imperative that our leaders in both parties prioritize this. Right. Um, go ahead. Well, I was going to say we're running out of time, but just let me add to the when you talk about our leaders need to understand this and, and the demagoguery obviously has to stop. And I don't know how you deal with racism and xenophobia, but it seems as at least in Mexico, the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, yesterday in response to the death of 22 Mexican citizens found dead in this trail outside of San Antonio, said, this is bitter proof that we must continue to insist on supporting people so that they do not have to leave their villages to look for a life on the other side of the border. Exactly. I think, I mean, that's exactly the right mentality. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that uh, that AMLO, the Mexican president, has been um, has been doing that, has been helping people in the way that he should be. But but that sentiment is exactly the right the right one. Well, Jean Guerrero, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jean Guerrero, who's an opinion columnist at the Los Angeles Times and was previously an investigative border reporter for NPR, the PBS NewsHour, and other public media, a recipient of an Emmy. She's been, she began her career at the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones Newswise as a correspondent in Mexico City and is the author of Crux, a cross-border memoir, and most recently, Hate Monger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda. And her latest article at the Los Angeles Times is Unending Deaths of Migrants Driven by Desperation and U.S. Border Policies. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the likelihood that Giuliani and Flynn will go to jail and that the DOJ is already building cases against Meadows, Clark, Eastman and Trump. Solo voy con mi pena, solaba mi condena, correré mi destino. Para burlar la ley, perdido en el corazón de la grande Babilón. Me dicen el clandestino por no llevar papel. Pa una ciudad del norte, yo me fui a trabajar. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David K. Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's also the co-founder of dcreport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Welcome to Background Briefing, David K. Johnston. Well, glad to be with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, David, and I've often remarked that if you got a camera into the Oval Office during Trump's tenure, you would witness this unhinged, out-of-control 
ignorant, dangerous, reckless a man lashing out and the scales would come off the eyes of those people in the MAGA world uh, stuck inside the Fox News bubble. We got a glimpse of it, uh, did we not, yesterday from Cassidy Hutchinson, the, the top aide to the chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Do you think we're gonna, we'll get more? Do you think there'll be... I mean, Benny Thompson at the end of the hearing sort of asked people in Trump world to come forth. Is it likely that we'll hear more about who this man really is? Yes, I think so. And we will have a piece up uh, late Tuesday at DC Report about exactly this. But here's what we learned yesterday. We have a credible witness who was a Trump supporter who came forward and told what she saw, and while Trump is trying to say, oh, I've never heard of her, which is a standard line of his, she had an office right next to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, and between Meadows and the Oval Office. Uh, and there's photographic evidence galore of how she was there to observe. Uh, and at the end of the hearing, Liz Cheney, that rare principled Republican, whether you like her politics or not, she's certainly proven to be very principled. Liz Cheney puts up two different screen items showing witness tampering. Witness tampering is something that Donald Trump has done throughout his life. I and other people have documented it thoroughly. Well, the message that Liz sent may have gone over the heads of your average American but it wasn't missed by the criminal defense lawyers representing the people around Trump. That message was, we've got you. We've got everything the Justice Department needs to issue you uh, following a jury conviction, an orange jumpsuit. So come in now and start speaking. And she also sent a message to people who did not commit crimes. They didn't participate in the coup. People like Pat Cipollone, the White House uh, counsel, that is, he's the counsel to the institution, not to Donald Trump personally, who have refused to tell what they know. They can be charged, Cheney didn't say this, I'm telling you this as someone who teaches law, they can be charged with a felony called misprison of a felony. If you are aware of a traitorous act or other felony, you are obligated to immediately go to a court, uh, law enforcement, or the military and report this and failure to do so can land you in prison for, I think it's three years. Now that's a rarely used uh, crime, but the threat of it could certainly uh, encourage some people to step forward. And Ian, I assure you criminal defense lawyers uh, today, if not yesterday are telling their Trump clients, you got a choice. Donald's going to jail. How long are you going to go? Come in and cooperate. We can make some kind of a deal for you. Maybe we can even avoid jail for you. But if you don't come in, you're going to lose your freedom for a long time. So what are you going to do? You care more about Donald or are you going to rat him out? And again, I'm speaking with David K. Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize winning investor reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, 
And his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself. Well, uh, you're using mafia talk there, David K. Johnson. Deliberately. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But that's the aspect. I mean, he's been a white-collar criminal all his professional life. Yeah. But he's also had this fascination with the mob. He sees himself as a kind of godfather. He absolutely adores thugs and murderers like Putin and and Erdogan and, uh, and kleptocrats yep. like uh, Orban, etc. So wh- what is this about? I mean, is he really a wannabe mob boss? Or, I mean, I've talked to Miles Taylor and others that re- have been inside the Oval Office with him. And it, Miles Taylor, of course, was the author of those anonymous uh, op-eds in the New York Times. And there's earlier generals who were his, like his chief of staff, etc., they reveal a streak of incredible cruelty. I mean, he wanted to shoot, he wanted the Marines on the border to shoot Mexicans. And he wanted the the National Guard to shoot demonstrators in the legs. So is he a wannabe killer or is he really a sociopath? Well, I don't think those are mutually exclusive, Ian. Uh, Donald really does believe in his own mind, and, and he's believed this his whole life, that not only should he be president for life, something he's openly talked about, but no one else should because, you know, all the rest of you, you're idiots. No one but Donald Trump knows what to do and how to do it. And, you know, if you don't believe that, well, fake news. Uh, And so Donald uh, clearly wanted on January 6th there to be violence when he's told that, uh, according to the witness, when he is told these people are not being let past the magnetometers or they won't go past them because they have guns and and the uh, police have found uh, spotted people walking around with guns hidden under their coats, including apparently assault rifles. Trump says, let him in, let him in, take the mags out, meaning the magnetometers, take the mags out. They're not going to hurt me. Well, What more do you need to know that he wanted a violent overthrow of the government? And that he said, uh, according to the witness, uh, maybe Mike Pence deserves it, referring to the crowd chanting, hang Mike Pence. The man has, has no regard for anyone but himself. When push comes to shove down the road, even if he had to give up Ivanka, he would. He, he, he has no loyalty to anyone but himself. I mean, he's a dearly, deeply mentally disturbed guy. And I say this having spent hours and hours and hours with him over the phone and reading and collecting and analyzing tens of thousands of pages of documents I've collected over the last 34 years about him. A rotten job, but somebody has to do it, right? <laughs> well... Yeah, it, he's, it, it, at least he's very interesting. And most interesting is the people who continue to engage in denial. Right after the hearing ended yesterday, I immediately went to Fox News to see what they were going to say. And the first several Fox hosts predictably uh, want to minimize all of this. Oh, she's a 25-year-old girl. And what does she really know? And this isn't uh, this and that. And then they get to um, Andrew McCarthy, 
a lawyer and very, very right-wing uh, uh, writer at National Review who has worked in the White House in a previous administration. And McCarthy says, these are very serious matters that have been brought forth. This is very, very troubling. And the tone begins to shift as the entertainers who pose as journalists recognize that uh, they, um, they need to uh, adjust what they're saying a little bit. I also went to places like Breitbart yesterday. What would Breitbart? I mean, come on, this is big news, right? They're Donald's news organization. Nothing there about the hearings. Then I go to OAN, uh, One America News, that Donald says is the best news, and you should be watching it. And all that's there is a, an ad for a scam I can't get past. I, I spent 10 minutes trying to get past this ad for a financial scam, uh, and and no reporting on this. So remember, there are a huge segment of the American public, including many of the 70-some million people who voted for Trump, who they have no idea what's actually going on. All they know is Donald has told him this is a witch hunt, and these rubes believe him. And this is dangerous. This is dangerous. We will not. We will not get out of this without violence. I know which I've said. I know for most of the last seven years. And do you think that uh, the violence will be precipitated by an indictment of Trump? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And and what you're going to see now is there's no question that Donald Trump committed crimes. So when you hear some former prosecutor or, or uh, tax professor, I'm merely a I mean a law professor. I'm merely a lecturer in a law school. Um, say that, well, you know, should he be prosecuted? Of course he should be prosecuted. No one is above the law. The issue is how to frame the case so that he is convicted. But before that, you're going to see cases brought against John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Michael Flynn, um, maybe Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, uh, and others. And that was the message Cheney was sending yesterday. Now, there's no hope for Rudy Giuliani and Michael Flynn. Uh, they're they're going to they're going to go to prison, and there's nothing they can do, and there's nothing they have to offer that's worth anything. But Mark Meadows might well be able to provide, you know, testimony that would uh, seal Donald's fate, and he might, as a result, get a deal. Uh, for reduced prison time or maybe no prison time at all, depending on what he's got. But whether you were a plotter or mis simply an observer inside the White House, it's time to decide and step forward. And that's what yesterday's hearing was about. And by the way, why did they hold that hearing yesterday? You ever heard of a congressional hearing the week before the 4th of July? Clearly, there were threats against this witness and they wanted to make sure they had her on the record, and they'll never say this, but, you know, in case somebody kills her, or what they probably would say, before she might get cold feet. That was a really brave thing that woman did yesterday. And let's not forget there are lots of people in Donald Trump's wake who, uh, you know, died in mysterious circumstances, uh, a helicopter crash, the likes of which has never happened in the world a jet plane crash by uh, a mob buddy of Donald's, of people who uh, potentially were problems for him. Uh, and, of course, Donald threatens people all the time. He's threatened me so many times in the last 34 years, I can't even begin to remember them. And, by the way, I always say to him, you know, Donald, you think you need to ruin me and bring a lawsuit? Go right ahead. 
because same, the worst the same thing Donald to do with a dropped, bully is be afraid. <laughs> right. The same Donald had dropped off his 2005 tax return in your mailbox, right? You're right. Exactly. Yeah. So just in the last few minutes then, uh, David K. Johnson, Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, lawyer is also Jeff Sessions' lawyer. Do you think that yeah. there's, amongst those people who were trashed by Trump and have served in his White House, do you think there's a coalition that could be put together that could lean on others like Pat Cipollone, who you mentioned, who would be really important to testify and to verify everything that Cassidy Hutchinson said? Is there a possibility, or is, is there anything brewing out there in, in the form of... I mean, I was always disappointed in in the generals uh, who knew exactly what was going on and never really right. came forth. So well, is there a well, change underway there, do you think? Did she open the, the door for others with a timid conscience to come forth? She's a real game changer here. And there's, after her testimony, there's no question that there were crimes and there's evidence of them, and the committee's got a lot more. Uh, the... A thing that will happen now is if people don't come in, it's clear the Justice Department already has a major criminal investigation going underway. They've just been quiet about it. But uh, affidavits in support of um, uh, search warrants and subpoenas on their face have made it clear that uh, John Eastman and others are under criminal investigation and so is Donald Trump. Now, there's a technical issue of whether he is yet a target or simply um, uh, a character in the investigation. But justice is moving ahead. And the nice thing about conspiracy law in America and every other country that has a similar conspiracy law is it's designed to break up the conspiracy. You rat out your friends. You come in and tell what you know. We can do things for you. Uh, but if you don't, um, and we don't need you, we're going to throw the book at you. Now, as I said, there's no hope for, for Michael Flynn. You know, he's, he's at the gates of hell with the big sign that says, you know, abandon all hope, ye who enter here, as uh, Dante put it. But um, y y it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. But you're going to see these people picked off one after another. Remember, in Watergate, the Attorney General of the United States, Mitchell, went to prison. The two top aides to Richard Nixon went to prison. Uh, Nixon's tax lawyer went to prison. And the only reason Nixon didn't go to prison was that Jerry Ford concluded that because Nixon resigned uh, and didn't force us to go through impeachment and a trial, that the country could would be better off if we moved on. You can agree or disagree with that decision. I happen to think it was the right decision at the time. But uh, he would have been next. And so Donald's day, Donald's day is coming. And despite the feckless Democrats in New York and DC, uh, who had the opportunity to criminally pursue him and walked away from it because, you know, like lots of Democrats, they have no spine. They have, um, they talk a good game, but when push comes to shove, they show that they're cowards. Uh, Merrick Garland is simply a man who is very cautious but he's not going to hold back, and he, I'm sure, understands the depth of the damage will be done to our republic if there isn't prosecution, especially after this witness and the additional ones that uh, clearly are coming. So just in closing then, David K. Johnson, do you think that Trump 
will announce that he's running for the presidency in the hope that that might give him some cover. You know, the Office of Legal Counsel at the DOJ has this ridiculous ruling, you can't indict a sitting president. So he's no longer a sitting president. But right. if he's running for the presidency, that might uh, give him some protection. At least he may think it gives him some protection. What, he may your... think that, but no, I, I, uh, I don't think that Donald has any refuge at all in running. The Republicans, you know, are paying Donald and Don Jr.'s pre-presidential legal bills. Why are they doing that? Because they're terrified he'll run as an independent if they don't nominate him. He won't win. I mean, he lost the popular vote both times, and a lot of more people now have seen the light. Uh, and if he runs as a, as a third-party candidate, the Democrats uh, you know, could run anybody, not just Joe Biden, and they're guaranteed to win. So uh, Donald has a leverage here for the moment with the Republican Party. You know, do what I say or I'll, I will, uh, I'll run as a third-party candidate. And they have no way to control him. Nobody can control him. So um, it's just the wheels of justice have been way too slow here. And it's terrible that the January 6th committee had to do the work, a lot of the work of the Justice Department. But it's getting done, and the record, Ian, is so overwhelming at this point. There's no more issue about should Donald be indicted, should he be prosecuted. It's how do you frame the case to convict him. Well, David K. Johnson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Well, thank you, and we just posted our piece at DC Report about this. And what's the title? Liz Cheney sends conspirators a message. Well, I thank you for joining us again, and I've been speaking with David K. Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States, and he's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. And his latest article at DC Report is Liz Cheney Sends Conspirators a Message. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining concerns that the deal Sweden and Finland made with Turkey to join NATO involves selling out the Kurds. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kani Zulam, who is the director of the American Kurdish Information Network, a native of Kurdistan. He has worked closely with members of the U.S. Congress and their staff to seek the freedom of Kurdish parliamentarians imprisoned in Turkey, with a particular focus on the case of Leila Zana. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kani Zulam. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there are concerns that the deal that was made at the NATO summit between Sweden and Finland and Turkey, who have, who were basically extorting uh, the membership of Sweden and Finland to join NATO and placing conditions on having a unanimous vote that was necessary for Sweden and, and Finland to join, 
the NATO alliance, a, a deal was made. Now, there are concerns that the deal was made at the expense of the Kurds. So did the Swedes and the Finns sell out the Kurds? It looks like they did. Um, we don't know what transpired uh, when they were meeting. Uh, but what has come across in the media is that uh, Sweden and Finland will lift restrictions on the um, weapons uh, sales to Turkey and that they would, you know, work diligently together um, against the Kurds, I guess, even though they may not have worded it as such. Um, there are 150,000 Kurds living in Sweden. Um, I don't know the exact number for Finland, but it's in thousands. People are fleeing. Many of them are political refugees. In the case of Sweden, the history goes back to 1980s, the coup that took place on September 12, 1980 in which 650,000 people were thrown into prisons, many of whom Kurds, many of whom were horribly tortured. In Sweden itself, there's a government, a coalition government, if you will, and the uh, deciding vote is actually, it just happens that a, a Kurdish member of the Swedish parliament keeps the government on its feet. And she had a rule that the Swedish government would recognize the Syrian Democratic Forces that had, um, you know, in fighting ISIS, 11,000, their fighters had, had died, Syrian Democratic Forces being mostly Kurds and Arabs. And she still, um, you know, holds the key to the government. Um, I don't know what she, her reaction will be. I guess in the days to come, we will find out. But uh, the Kurds themselves um, are not strangers to, um, you know, being used as pawns. We just hope that Sweden and Finland may have pay, will you know pay lip service to, to to Turks and then not given from their principles in terms of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly which do not exist in Turkey which are the reasons for many of these Kurds to flee to Europe so you're referring to the Swedish parliamentarian Amine Kakabave correct she's an Iranian of Kurdish descent or Iranian Kurd and she's described this deal as a black day for Sweden. And she has argued that Stockholm is sacrificing the Kurds. So what do you think? I mean, if it's a black day in Swedish political history, and she's saying that the Kurds are being sacrificed for the sake of NATO membership, it doesn't sound like she's on board. Well, you know, I should tell you a little bit of uh, history about her. Um, she fought in the mountains of Kurdistan against the um, Khomeini government um, in her in her teens, from the age of 13 to 19, she was, um, you know, helping in the camps, uh, helping fighters, and then herself fighting. Then, at, when she was 19, she uh, left for Sweden, uh, learned Swedish language well, excelled uh, in her studies, and is one of the, uh, I believe, six members of the parliament who are Kurds. So she. She made it very clear that if the Swedish government wants her vote, the uh, liberal government wants her vote, then they need to uh, honor the sacrifices of the Kurds in Syria against ISIS, which is which was a threat not just to the Kurds, but to Europeans, to Americans. And she may actually withdraw her support. And if it does, she the government will collapse. But they may also talk to her in ways that may tell her that maybe she should support the government. I don't know. Uh, in the days to come, we'll find out. 
she has a unique uh, story. She has a unique uh, perspective as well as a unique role in the government as we speak. And again, I'm speaking with Kani Zulam, who is the director of the American Kurdish Information Network, a native of Kurdistan. He has worked closely with members of the United States Congress and their staff to seek the freedom of Kurdish parliamentarians imprisoned in Turkey. Well, it's not entirely clear what's happening um, with her and her relationship with Magdalena Anderson, the Prime Minister, because, first of all, 80% of the members of parliament in Sweden back Sweden's uh, NATO application. And now they're having elections in September, and the Prime Minister's uh, Social Democratic Party expects to do well and may not need her vote. So I guess there's plenty of room for compromise, right? Correct. The government, the upcoming elections might tilt the um, uh, elections towards the liberal liberals. Um, but there's another thing that should be um, brought up uh, with your audiences. Um, Erdogan has been wanting to meet with Biden ever since Biden came to power. And when Biden came to power, uh, the first interview he gave uh, was that, you know, the fight that we're waging is against authoritarianism and it may take, you know, generations. Um, he was, you know, almost comparing it to the fight against communism. And uh, in, you know, Turkey, in spite of its authoritarian credentials, was accepted into NATO, was, uh, you know, part of NATO. But with Biden in power, with Biden in the White House, uh, Biden, um, during, even during the campaign, had expressed a lot of um, unhappiness with Erdogan and the way he was treating dissidents in Turkey, not just Kurds, but also Turks. And um, I think Erdogan got a meeting out of Biden or a phone call first and then a meeting in Madrid, apparently either today or tomorrow. So he had desperately wanted to um, connect with Biden. Uh, in Turkey, uh, he, you know, he, he, the fact that Biden was keeping him at arm's length was viewed as a not as a good thing. And so now he got this um, out of Biden. Um, as I said, we'll wait and see what what it means in terms of the Kurds. Uh, it could be that some of them may be arrested and may be extradited, which is what Erdogan wants. And um, Erdogan's friend is an ambassador in Stockholm, in Sweden. And when he initially um, made a list public, uh, 33 people he wanted in, from Sweden to be extradited, many Kurds, some Gulenists, some leftists, uh, Amina was on that list too, and Amina, that's when she gave a speech in the parliament saying, you know, Erdogan is not in charge of our laws, we are in charge of our laws, the Swedish parliament is in charge of our laws. Um, Erdogan kind of went quiet on Amina's case later, but on the initial list, even her name was listed to be arrested and extradited to Turkey. And we're talking about a duly elected member of Swedish parliament here. Right. Well, Erdogan doesn't care about his own people. He doesn't care. He, he jails journalists. He jails. He's jailed all kinds of people. People that have done academic studies. There's this law that you can't insult Erdogan, which is broadly interpreted. I mean, the guy's an absolute menace. But his justice minister has said that we're seeking the extradition of terrorists. That's what he refers to the people that they want in both Finland and 
in Sweden. Uh, and so far, they've apparently sent a list of 11 PKK members and 10 Gulenists. Um, so that's less than the 33. But um, what, what's likely to happen here? I mean, can... Sweden, Sweden's not going to turn over these people, are they? I can't imagine. I can't imagine myself. I mean, it would be, um, you know, there's a joke in Kurdish coffee houses these days that uh, Erdogan never really wanted to join EU. He wanted uh, EU to look like Turkey. Um, if he truly, uh, you know, if they, if Swedish authorities uh, make it difficult for Kurds to express themselves um, in terms of, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, it would, uh, yeah, it would reflect rather, you know, it, it, it's when, when um, Biden met with Swedish prime minister and Finnish president at the White House in March uh, this year, was it March or was it uh, April? I forgot the exact date. Um, you know, the Swedish prime minister is on record, said, you know, we're, we stand for human rights, we stand for freedom of expression, we, we stand for democracy. And this is, for a vast majority of the, of the Kurds who are in Sweden, that's the exact reason why they are there. They, you know, for example, I'll give you a story, an example. Mehmet Uzun, the most famous Kurdish writer, you know, sought his refuge in, in Stockholm when he was 17, produced his works of art in his in, when he was in exile there, and worked around the clock to reconcile the Kurds with the Turks, but, you know, he didn't succeed. He, he passed away in 2007. Um, and he had left, um, he had been arrested in 1973, coup in Turkey, and then threatened to be arrested again, and then he fled in mid-70s for, for um, Sweden. So there's a history there. The Kurds have, you know, have turned Sweden into um, a place where they have produced works of art. Uh, they have kept the Kurdish language alive. They have kept, you know, Kurdish culture alive. Uh, you can go to school, like you can send your school to a uh, Kurdish school in Sweden, in Stockholm, um, but you cannot do that in Turkey. That's how, how big of a difference we're talking about. And there are only 160,000 uh, Kurds in Sweden and there are you know, close to 20 million Kurds in Turkey. Um, to this day, um, there, is no pre, there isn't a, one Kurdish preschool in Turkey. To this day, um, there is one Kurdish television, but it's on a very tight leash, and it's 100% you know, controlled by the government, and it just spews Turkish propaganda instead of you know, letting Kurds make programs or um, you know, talk about their culture or their history or their literary people. Right. Well, let's talk in the last few minutes here, though, about what can be done to get rid of this menace, Erdogan. And he's a kleptocrat and a thug. And as much as he's persecuting the Kurds, he's also persecuting his own intelligentsia, his own journalists, etc., and uh, jailing enormous numbers of people. But his economy is in free fall. Inflation is about 70%, I believe. He's a complete moron when it comes to economic issues, and he's making really devastatingly bad economic decisions. Unfortunately, it's hard to find for opposition candidates to get any publicity because he controls the media. So what sense do you have in the last couple of minutes here? Somebody can defeat this guy because he's unpopular, but he controls the media and he controls the judiciary and uh, the military, etc. 
Um, all those things that you say stand. Um, Erdogan, uh, you know, truly, if you, he doesn't, you know, supposedly drink, but if you could have a bottle of wine with him and speak heart to heart, he would love to have a new Ottoman Empire uh, resurrected, just like Putin is making references to Peter the Great and wants to, you know, have a client state or a in Ukraine incorporated into Russia. Um, Erdogan uh, just doesn't believe in the self-determination of the Kurds. He just thinks Kurds should be grateful that they are alive. Um, he doesn't like Kurds to have leaders. He doesn't like Kurds. He wants Kurds to be docile. Uh, where does he Where does he go and what could possibly bring him down? You know, Euripides says, uh, he has a famous quote, when gods uh, want to destroy somebody, they, they first make him mad. Um, you know, Saddam in the Middle East acted erratically and then he brought his own end uh, to a certain degree. Um, and Erdogan, you know, I don't want to compare the two, but he's acting erratically. He doesn't understand from economy and yet, you know, he wants to run the country and he wants to run the economy. In 2015, when King Abdullah died in Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Erdogan declared national mourning for three days. He lowered the flags. You know, if it's up to him, he wants to reorient Turkey towards Mecca, Medina, not really Europe. If people want to reorient themselves to Mecca and Medina, I'm fine with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But if people, you know, also want to study, you know, sciences and exchange do exchange programs with Europeans, with Americans, that should be okay too. But overall, I think he would love to create a Islamic theocracy. Overall, I think he would like to, uh, he, he is up to his neck in corruption. In 2013, he was caught red-handed, um, you know, when he was, his phone was listened to um, and shared, that information was shared. He was telling his son to hide the money from his house, his apartment in Istanbul. Uh, yeah, the man is corrupt, but, you know, human history is uh, full of surprises, too. Ceausescu had his moment, and then the government, the people said enough is enough, and then he was uh, machine-gunned. Um, I don't know if that will happen to Erdogan, but ideally, uh, he deserves to have Milosevic's uh, fate. He should be arrested and prosecuted for war crimes, for... Um, you know, unnecessary wars against the Kurds in Syria and Iraq. And then all the, um, since the, the the fake coup that apparently uh, he initiated in 2015, 16, um, all these people that have been, you know, have lost their jobs and have been tortured in prisons. Uh, I'm talking about uh, the followers of Gulen. He, you know, they were working together and then all of a sudden he turned on them and now he's going after them. I mean, he has confiscated $15 billion worth of their property, for example. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Kani Zulam, who's the director of the American Kurdish Information Network, a native of Kurdistan. He's worked closely with members of the U.S. Congress and their staff to seek the freedom of Kurdish parliamentarians imprisoned in Turkey. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America One more light goes out in the